Well, good afternoon. My name is Pastor David, uh, senior pastor here. What comes to mind when you think of Noah? Perhaps it's uh, pairs of animals in a cute little boat, or maybe it's a white-bearded man holding out a white dove, or perhaps a a multicolored rainbow in a bright blue, sunshiny sky. You know, chapters 6 to 8 of Genesis are some of the most well-known chapters in the entire Bible. However, children's books and illustrations often remove far from our minds the purpose of the flood in God's judgment of sin. Or the fact that every living thing that was not in that boat died. The flood is also one of the most widely known stories around the world. Some account of a large-scale flood is recorded on every single continent. Isn't that amazing? Most of them do include the judgment of God for the sin of people and the fact that only a handful of people survive. For instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, one of the most popular flood stories outside of the Bible. It was written right here in Mesopotamia. The main character, Utnapishtim, is granted God status because he survives the flood. Or consider the story from Thailand. It says it this way. A thousand years had passed since the supreme God created the man and the woman. Their descendants were wicked and rude, and they were not interested at all in worshiping the one supreme God. And that God got angry and punished them with a great flood. Sounds pretty close so far, doesn't it? Well... Fortunately, some did survive by fleeing in an enormous gourd, magical gourd. Well, with so much misunderstanding surrounding this flood account, it's important that we hear what God's word has to say about the flood, why it happened, who it affected, who escaped and why. Well, compared to the creation and the fall that we've looked at already, Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives quite a lot of text to this account of the flood. And that's for good reason, because in this account, we see more clearly the theme of Genesis 1 to 11 that we've been following this whole time, that paradise was lost and promises were made. The main point of the passage that we're looking at today is that God brought ultimate judgment of death for all who sinned, but one who found favor with God escaped. And we're going to consider that in three sections. Firstly, God's judgment. Second, God's favor. And third, Noah's faith. So let's begin with God's judgment and why this flood had to happen at all. We see it in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, which reads, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man 
were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, like Eve's first sin, these men are seeing and taking. But rather than fruit, it's women. And in in verses 3 and 4, the sin grows even worse. Now, whether these sons of God are of the line of Seth and the daughters of men are the, the, the line of Cain, or whether it's angels and men, uh, it's, it's a matter of much debate. What is really important, though, is God's response to this. God is grieved over the increase of sin. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts or the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Grieved him to his heart. Now, we have to understand that God... He doesn't regret. He doesn't grieve in the same way that we do. Unlike us, He knows the end from the beginning. And His plan is perfect. But a perfect plan does not mean a painless plan. God can feel grief for His action with with the view of pain and suffering and misery that that comes along with it, and yet still go ahead with the plan and perform it. His wisdom sees the good beyond. And you see, mankind's sin, mankind's sin in the fall was not a mistake in God's plan, even though it's very painful. You can kind of think of God's grief. Again, remember, He's he's different from us. But think of it like the feeling of a father who, who disciplines his child, knowing that it will cause pain, and feeling sorrow because of the pain of that discipline. Yet, The father goes ahead with that because he knows it's going to save that child and bring about right behavior in the future. God's grief is is the it's holy justice meeting holy love. That's where God's grief sits. And since every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart was evil it's it's sin it must be punished god god grieves because he knows the cost of perfect justice is death remember back in genesis 2:17 he said in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And one day, God knows that death would be the death of His one and only Son. 
sin had grown so much by this time that God must destroy all the life that He had created. Now, God's grieving sin begs two questions that we need to to see or that we need to ask about how we view sin. Firstly, do you grieve your own sin? Do you grieve your own sin? Sin causes pain. It promises pleasure. Oh, you're going to have a great time. It'll be fun. It'll make you feel good. But it always causes pain. Reflecting on this passage, I, I, I was realizing in myself, I don't grieve sin nearly enough. My sin, I don't see as I should. I don't, I don't confess. I don't acknowledge it as I should. Friends, our sin, our sin is so great that only the death of God's one and only Son could produce an escape. Do you grieve your sin? The second question is this. Do you grieve the sin of others? Now, honestly, most of the time when we grieve other people's sin, it's usually because somehow it's affected us. We're, we're upset about their sin because it affected me. That's just a reflection of our own selfish heart. Grieving the sin of others is mourning for what it does to them and what it does to those around them. It's, it's feeling what God feels about sin. Lamenting the sexual immorality that's destroying marriages and ministries. It's weeping with friends or, and relatives who are, are trapped in the addiction of drugs or alcohol or other addictions. It's crying out in prayer that, that these would repent and turn to Jesus, the only hope of rescue. Do you grieve the sins of others? In judgment, God reverses creation. Think about it. Remember back in Genesis 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and out of that, God created order from the chaos. Well, now, in Genesis 6 to 8, God brings back the waters over His creation. And thus, the whole world came to know the reality of God's judgment. Consider the reality of God's judgment here in verses 7 and 13. We're going to look at both of those verses. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. In verse 13, And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God had made mankind in His image. And He blessed them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Yet rather than filling the earth with the image and the glory of God, they filled it with violence. God's judgment is deserved. They had filled the earth with violence and God judged it in righteousness. It was the destruction of all flesh. And you know, the the Bible promises that there will be another judgment. Another judgment that will come on the earth, not in a flood of water, but in fire. Revelation 14, 10 and 11 says, In the last days, those who come under God's judgment will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. In our statement of faith here at EIBC, we affirm what the Bible says about that day. It says this, At the last day, Christ will physically return to earth and raise the dead from the grave to a final retribution. A separation will then take place. The wicked will be judged and sentenced to endless conscious punishment and the righteous to endless joy. Christ's judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell. Friends, God knows how to judge His creation. And God knows how to rescue those who take refuge in Him. Those who find favor look to Him for refuge. Let's turn now to that second point, God's favor. In verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was from this great family, the tenth from Adam in the line of Seth. His great-grandfather, Enoch, had walked with God, and God just simply took him. He had a great heritage. But notice, it doesn't say that God found favor with Noah. Look back there. As if Noah did something to earn anything. No, no. It says rather that Noah found favor in the sight of God. God, you see, favors those He chooses. Consider the fact that Lamech, Noah's father, had many other sons and daughters, it said. 
None of them found favor. None. God's favor came first. And, and the order is important here. Really. God favored Noah in verse 8. And then in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man. Then blameless in his generation. Then he walked with God. The order is important. And we're going to come back to the order in an application later. But notice too in verse 13. Look down at verse 13. God's word comes to the one he favors. The fact that you're here, that you're hearing God's word right now, is a sign of God's favor. What will you do with it? For Noah, God's favor led to God's word. And Noah believed that word, which led to God's rescue. Let's look at God's rescue. In 6.14 through 7.5, we have the record of God's word to Noah. Verses 14 to 16, he gives a detailed plan for the building of that ark, that large boat, which was to hold his family and all the animals. Then in verse 17, he retells this judgment again, saying he's going to bring floodwaters upon the earth and that everything on the earth shall die. And then in verse 18, a promise. But I will establish my covenant with you. And next week, we're going to see that covenant in great detail. But then in, in, in verses 19 all the way through chapter 7 verse 5 God tells Noah to bring the male and female of all the animals and every sort of food that can be eaten um, so what did Noah do well twice we hear Noah's response in verse 6:22 and then in, also in 7:5 it says Noah did this he did all that God commanded him. Well, the rest of chapter 7 describes the destruction of the flood, climaxing in verses 21 to 24. It says, Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The earth was judged. Noah escaped. As Second Peter 2.9 uh, says, uh, the passage that John read for us earlier, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And how does he do that? Well, let's see how God's mercy comes through judgment. You see, this, this instrument of God's mercy had raised them up over His judgment. 
The, the flood was purifying the earth from sin in God's judgment. And that ark of wood, that ark of wood that they entered into was God's mercy to keep them alive above His judgment. So many times through chapters 6 and 7, it speaks of Noah, the family, the animals entering into the ark, going into the ark many times. It's a repeated theme. In the ark was where they were kept alive. It was God's mercy. And in a similar way, there will come a day when God will pour out His wrath on all flesh. Friends, He has prepared another instrument of wood to keep alive His favored ones. A tree cut down in the forest was prepared by a carpenter, was carried by an unsuspecting traveler, and then Christ was nailed to the wood of that cross. And the penalty of sin was paid for. Upon the wood of that tree, the judgment of God meets the, the love of God in an explosion of the mercy of God. For all who will believe, Jesus Christ, the one who is attached to that tree is the instrument of God's mercy. And through Christ's resurrection, we are brought safely to the other side, to eternal life, to eternal rest. In Christ, we escape like Noah from the flood of God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment is coming ever, ever nearer. Friend, have you received God's favor? Have you entered into God's instrument of mercy? Now, some may say, well, they said this even back in the days of Noah. Well, where is this judgment? Ever since our fathers died, everything's continued as it was from the beginning of creation. Even in Jesus' day, He said they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Yet the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, so it will be in the last days. As 2 Peter 3, 5-7 says, they deliberately forget that God, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. But the same Word, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Friends, 
God's judgment will come. His word to Noah was to go into the ark and escape the judgment of death, to be kept alive. His word to you is come to Jesus and escape the coming judgment. Find eternal life. John 3.16-18 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Friend, your hearing this word is God's favor. How you respond to His Word will determine your destiny. Either facing God's just judgment or escaping the flames through Christ. Now for those who believe, for some, those who believe, that will come with many difficulties. But remember, remember, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And He will take you through them in Christ. Christian, this word is not only about that initial moment of salvation. Even in our ongoing sanctification, God uses the trials, the fire of trials to test us, to to purify us. Nearly the entire New Testament testifies to this fact. Are you going through a trial today? Perhaps ridicule or rejection because of your faith. Perhaps you're feeling the pain of God's testing flame, the Lord's discipline in your life, or perhaps that produced by the consequences of some sin in your life. Sometimes we feel these trials just in the pain of living in a world that is dominated by sin. Whether it's the devastation of war or corrupt politicians, the pain of broken hearts or broken marriages, sickness, disease, loss, death. Think about this. Noah went through the flood. He went through the flood. But in that ark of wood, he and all who were with him were kept alive above the flood. God knows how to rescue his own. And he can bring you through it, believer. He is your rescue. God's favor comes to those he chooses. And his word to those he favors. And his word says to you, seek refuge in Christ. You will find escape there. You will find refuge for your soul. Now, once we've 
receive this favor and hear his word, it's important how we respond. Noah heard and obeyed. But consider what happened between Noah's hearing and obeying. Well, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us Noah had faith. Let's consider now Noah's faith. Noah's faith was a gift from God, and it was based on his word. We see pictures of Noah's faith throughout this account of his life, beginning with chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, just as God's favor didn't come from Noah, so Noah's faith did not come from himself either. Faith begins with God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 shows us that faith is a gift from God. It says there, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So Noah's faith was God's gift enabling him to trust God. The gift of faith gave Noah the ability to believe God. Now, there's a lot of teaching out there these days about faith and what faith is and how to employ faith. And well, some of that follows the Bible and some of it just doesn't. But as Christians, we must base our faith on God's written word. Not our own experiences, not a feeling, not some inner voice. Now, some people might say, well, Noah didn't have God's written word. That is true. But friends, we live in a different time. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is now the revelation of God. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, "All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness." that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of God's words to us are contained in the Bible. There's no new revelation from God for the church today. The Old Testament is pointing back to Jesus. The New Testament is pointing forward to or, uh, sorry, the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. The New Testament is looking back to Jesus. And these scriptures teach us about salvation. What is salvation? Where does it come from? Who's it in? These scriptures, they complete our sanctification. We don't find ourselves getting any holier doing something else than what the Word says. And these Scriptures equip us for every good work. 
God's gift of faith is based on His Word. Having this gift, Noah's faith in God was expressed in reverent fear that led to obedience. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now imagine somebody gives you a precious gift. Or let's turn it the other way. Imagine you give somebody a precious gift. You put much into it. You, you wrap it up very nicely. You hand it off to them. And they receive it with joy and, and, and set it aside. A couple weeks later, you ask about it. Oh, I didn't open it. And actually, I can't find it anymore. Is an unopened gift truly received? I think not. Here's two tests to know if you have this gift of faith. Well, one, true faith from God has God as its object. It's, it's faith in God. It's not faith about God. It's not faith in what I can do with God. It's not God working in me. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. True faith has God as its object. Secondly, true faith will lead you to act. True faith will lead you to act. James 2, 14-26 describes this really clearly. The last verse sums it up well. It says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead... So, faith apart from works is dead. Noah, acting in reverent fear, constructed the ark. Hearing God's decision to to judge the earth, that was a fearful thing. And believing God, Noah built the ark. He took God at His word. Noah acted on his faith. As Genesis 7, 5 says, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, faith, again, faith comes before obedience. And the work of obedience confirms faith. So Christian, let me ask you, are you acting on the gift of faith that God has given you? Are you acting on that? The Bible says we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are called the doctrines of grace. And this is where we come back to that that order of faith that we were talking about at the beginning of faith and works is so important. Faith comes 
First comes God's favor. We're saved by grace through faith. And then come acts of obedience. We know a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus. Not by obedience. Not by works of the law. Yet after starting new lives in Christ, there's this temptation to seek perfection by human effort. Paul wrote a whole book called Galatians about this problem. Obeying God does lead to a better understanding of the one who rescued you, but it will not Increase your status in God's sight. No. Christ has brought you as close to God as you will ever be. So, dear Christian, let that fact lead you to obey like Noah did. Walk in obedience to God's word. Imitate Christ in humility and serving Confess your sin and forgive others their sins as you've been forgiven. Study God's word. Consider how to apply it to your life. Let obedience in these things lead you to reflect over and again on the doctrines of grace. Now, earlier I'd mentioned God sometimes will test us with trials, with fire. Sometimes, also, God will test us with waiting. In a small way, it's like like those times when I'm driving across town and I hit every single red light. God is teaching me to wait. <laughs> Consider how, how faith in God can be expressed in waiting on God. Let's look at waiting. This flood... This flood lasted a lot longer than you may have realized. We typically think that it lasted 40 days and 40 nights, right? But no. From, from chapter 7, verses 6 to 11, it says that Noah entered the ark on the 10th day of the second month. But according to chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Noah did not leave the ark when it rested on that mountain on the 17th day of the seventh month. And according to chapter 8, 14 through 16, it says in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. Now I know Noah's calendar is not the same as ours, but did you realize that that's like tomorrow? the 27th day of the second month? Hmm. Well, they were in that ark 382 days. More than a year. Noah waited on God's command. Can you imagine the smell how they must have longed to leave that ark, that stinky, dirty, 
nasty place. No privacy. I mean, the giraffes were always looking over into the toilet room. That's patience in trial. The Lord, the Lord has even more patience with us. Noah waited a year for the Lord's command to leave the ark. But the Lord, the Lord waited 10 generations to bring justice to the earth. The Lord has been waiting 2,000 years, maybe even more, until Christ returns. As we come to the end of chapter 8, we see Noah's response to God. Genesis 8:20-21 Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground because of man." Faith in God is expressed in worship. You'd think that when Noah got out of the boat, he would jump down on that dry ground and kiss it. But he doesn't. He comes out of the ark and he builds an altar. He chose to worship God who saved them through that destroying flood. And it was the right response. And it pleased God. Believer, Are you drawn to worship? To worship God for His provision and protection in your rescue. If you're not drawn to worship, why not? He paid an enormous price for your escape. Your worship is the right response to His grace and mercy. You see, Noah was saved by God in that wooden boat. Jesus saves us now on this wooden cross. He died and rose again for us and for our salvation. And hallelujah, He bore the wrath of God that was reserved for us. And now, now we can walk like Noah, in the favor of God, righteous, blameless, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, the sin of mankind grieves your spirit. It was the cause of the flood and the cross. Lord, help us to see the depth and the darkness of our sin. May we grieve and by faith turn in repentance daily to Christ. Lord, if there are any here who have not entered salvation in Christ, we pray that now they will receive and and be open to your gift of faith. 
And Lord, may we who believe walk day by day in accordance with this gospel. This gospel that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Trusting no one and nothing else. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.